What if everyone thought you murdered your best friend? And what if you can't remember that night? And what if the truth doesn't matter? The Washington Post says Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie is an edgy mystery novel whose true crime storyline draws you in like the podcast Serial. A Good Morning America book club pick that Stephen King calls a page-turner from the first sentence to the very last. Listen for the Lie is on sale now everywhere books are sold. In the consult, we discuss cases that are sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. This is part two of Profiling Joseph James D'Angelo. In this episode, fellow retired FBI profiler Bob Drew and I continue our discussion of the serial burglar, rapist, and murderer, also known by names such as the Golden State Killer, original Night Stalker, and the East Area Rapist. Bob and I worked on this case when we were assigned to the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, which I think gives us a very unique perspective. If you haven't listened to part one, please do so as it provides more background information. Thank you. He's nothing without the element of surprise. He's not capable, competent, confident, Secure. In 1979, we see additional cases, and he ends up becoming more mobile. He's committing his crimes in Sacramento, in the surrounding areas, Rancho Cordova, Carmichael, Citrus Heights, Orangevale. He goes to Stockton. Modesto, Davis, Concord, San Ramon, San Jose, Danville, Fremont, Walnut Creek, which are the areas of uh, the East Bay in California. So he's, he's becoming more mobile, but all his crimes remaining the same, same MO that we've seen and that we've just described in the earlier cases that were contained in the Sacramento area. So none of the victims ever got a good look at the offender because he always wore a mask. He blindfolded them. He also used a flashlight to blind them. But he was generally described as a white male in his 20s or 30s, approximately 5 feet 9, 5 feet 11. It wasn't very useful. And there were several different composites that were made of him over the years. And I don't think any of them ever really looked exactly like him. So some of them may have been people who really saw the offender. Others may have just been, okay, I saw this guy in the area. So we really don't know which ones were him, which ones weren't. Um, You know, as I mentioned, the victims thought he was trying to disguise his voice. The one thing I also wanted to point out is that he always used some sort of lubricant during the sexual assaults, some sort of lotion. Often it was like baby lotion. 
he would either bring it to the scene or he would use what he found in the victim's homes. And then lastly, which I thought was unusual because so many victims described he had a very small penis, unusually small. The victims were very descriptive about it and all the descriptions were the same. And I think there may have been only one victim that didn't describe it that way. And it may just have been because of the trauma and she didn't recall or didn't make a note of it, but almost every other victim described him as being very abnormally small. I think what struck us when we first heard that was one, most victims of sexual assault do not have any specific observations of the offender's genitals unless it is something very unusual and very noticeable. This was in in low light circumstances and they were they were bound, blindfolded, etc. And yet, quite consistently throughout these cases, he was described as having a small penis. It wasn't on the small side or whatever. It, it was it was noticeably, notably, um, something that they considered a significant detail about his his physical presence, to the point where, despite the trauma of the case and potential embarrassment, the majority of the victims reported it. And it was something he was aware of, because in one case, one of the victims, in an attempt to appease him and keep him from becoming violent with her, she complimented his size and and made a comment that he was large. And he responded back that he had never been told that, that he had been told that he was very small, something along those lines. So he was aware that he had an abnormally small penis. He was aware of it and even told one of the victims. It's a physical characteristic. It is potentially very rich source of psychological trauma in the part of, of a man's personality and his behaviors. Although it's not a particularly helpful physical characteristic when you're looking for an individual. It did help the police in that they, it was just another characteristic to say, yes, this is his description is consistent. And also it was helpful in profiling him. It was a likely source of some type of psychological reaction, if not several characteristics that may have developed in response to his knowledge and having been told, as he said, that he had an unusually small penis. In the Sacramento area and Northern California, the sexual assaults occurred from 1976 to March of 1979. But then on October 1st, 1979, there was an attempted murder I believe that this case was just a turning point, and I want to explain what happened. This occurred in Goleta, California, which is in Santa Barbara County and approximately 400 miles south of Sacramento. The male and female victim were sleeping in bed. They were, again, awakened by the flashlight shining in their eyes. He threatened them, saying he would kill them and slit their throats. 
He repeatedly asked where the money was. He had the female victim tie up the male. He tied her up. They noted he spoke through clenched teeth. It's exactly the same as the other cases uh, that we have described and they saw up in you know Northern California and Sacramento. After tying up the victims, he proceeded to roam through their house, again, loudly opening drawers and cabinets, demanding to know where the money was. He returned several times to the bedroom, about four or five times. And then at one point unties the female's ankles and takes her into the living room, telling her that he wants her assistance in finding the money. He then placed a pair of shorts on her head, forced her onto the living room floor and retied her ankles through the blindfold that was on her head through the short. She could see that he was shining a flashlight up and down her body and she could hear him rubbing his clothes and suspected that he was masturbating. He left again and was rummaging through the kitchen and he threatened to kill her left again, opening and closing the drawers. And then at one point, She can hear him in the kitchen saying over and over again, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. I'll kill him. And she believed it. She thought he was going to kill them. At one point, he walks down the hallway and she sees this as an opportunity to escape. So she starts hopping toward the front door. The bindings come off her feet and she's able to run out the front door screaming while he chases her. He catches her, brings her back uh, into the house and reties her feet. But hearing his girlfriend scream, the male victim who's still in bed, he hops out of the back sliding door out into the backyard. He crosses the patio. He hides in some bushes that are near the fence line, and he just starts screaming for help. The victim's next door neighbor was an FBI agent. His name was Stan Lowe's. He heard the screaming and the commotion. He immediately called the sheriff's department, and then he went outside, and that's when he saw the offender fleeing on a bicycle and he gets into his car and he chases him, but he lost the offender when the offender abandoned his bike and then he fled on foot. And it had been determined that the bicycle had been stolen from a house that was approximately a half a mile from the victim's homes. So this case went really wrong for him. He had one victim going out the front door, another victim going out the back door. He lost complete control. And after this, or he never left anyone alive again. And I think it was a real turning point for him. I think, too, that turning point, again, can be interpreted a few different ways. It was certainly a, the practical consideration. It's almost a stereotypical thought that, well, you know, if you don't leave anyone alive, there's no witnesses, etc. That's true. But it does prioritize even more so than a, than a sexual assault and a burglary. Murder does prioritize the case. It isn't as, as much of a practical consideration in reality as people tend to think it is. And the second thing is that his control that he's enjoyed almost without a problem throughout his criminal career has been tested a few times. And it came a little too close for comfort. And he wanted to make sure that similar tests of his control did not occur. So, yes, it is a practical consideration, quote, for the commission of his crimes. But more importantly, 
it assures him that there will be no challenge to his his plan, his control after he commits the crime. And then we see that three months later, December 30th, 1979, he struck in Goleta again and he killed Deborah Manning and Robert Offerman. And Deborah was found lying face down in bed and she had been shot once in the back of the head and her arms were behind her back. They were bound at the wrists with white nylon twine. Her legs were not bound and she had not been sexually assaulted. And Robert was found on the floor at the foot of the bed and he had been shot three times and he was clutching the same twine that had been used to bind Deborah's wrists. So it had appeared that he had been able to get out of his bindings and get up off the bed. And when he did so, the offender immediately killed him. And then he shot Deborah immediately in the back of the head and he fled. There was no ransacking. There was no sexual assault. So this case did not go as planned for him as well. But what we noticed in this case, very similar behavior, even though it didn't go the same way that we are used to seeing because Robert Offerman was able to get out of his bindings. We saw very similar behavior in this case and his reaction to having to physically fight with a man that we saw in the earlier cases in Sacramento when he was confronted by Rodney Miller and Brian Maggiore. He goes on to kill Charlene and Lyman Smith in Ventura on March 16, 1980. Both of them were bludgeoned to death and they were bludgeoned with a log that had been taken from a wood pile that was alongside the house. And Charlene had been sexually assaulted. There was evidence of extensive ransacking. So in this case, it appeared that it likely unfolded just as we had seen in the other sexual assaults. The whole evening probably went the same way where he took Charlene out, sexually assaulted her, ransacking between the sexual assaults. And then at some point, and I would assume he put her back in bed with her husband and he was probably trying to minimize things and say, okay, I'm just going to leave now. But when he had no intention of leaving, he was going to kill them. Likely what happened just based on his prior actions at all the other scenes that we've seen. He goes on to kill Keith and Patrice Harrington in Dana Point, And they were found August 21st, 1980. They were both bludgeoned and Patrice had been sexually assaulted. Then there's Manuela Whithoon, who was murdered in Irvine on February 6th, 1981, and she had been sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death. In this case, her husband was in the hospital at the time that she was murdered, so he likely would have been home. And it's very possible that when the offender, Joe D'Angelo, was stalking, thought he was going to encounter a male in the home as well because Manuela's husband was in the hospital that night. He was not there. And then he killed Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez in Goleta on July 27, 1981. Greg had a non-fatal gunshot wound to his cheek, but he had died of 24 blows to the head. And Sherry had been sexually assaulted and she had been bludgeoned to death. So in this case, 
it appeared at some point after the ransackings and the sexual assaults and all the behavior that we saw exhibited in the prior crimes. I think at some point, Greg Sanchez realized he's going to kill us and he fought him and D'Angelo immediately shoots him, shoots him in the cheek. It was non-fatal, but then proceeds to inflict 24 blows to his head. The interesting part about what we're seeing as far as his crimes is that although he still brings with him the means to, to efficiently kill his victims, just shoot them. It worked in the past, works presumably would work just as well in these cases. But while it might have had use in controlling them initially, he has opted for a less efficient means of murder. Bludgeoning is extremely violent, first of all, and very physical. But what it does is consistent with his utterances and his attempts to change his voice in that it it is more an indication of the exertion of physical dominance as opposed to shooting or stabbing. This is physical dominance. Now, to physically dominate someone who's tied up, to beat someone to death when they're tied up is not realistically, is not something that has to be done by someone who is physically dominant. But as far as as the impression, the impression that he wants to demonstrate, to leave, to be viewed in this light, bludgeoning is a, a more violent, more physical, more dominant way to kill someone, even though it's less efficient and certainly not in service to the proficiency of his crimes. And after the murder of Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez, almost five years go by and there's nothing that we know of until Janelle Cruz was found murdered in her family's home on May 5th, 1986. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death and she had crushing skull fractures. And at the age of 18, she was his youngest murder victim. As far as we know, she was also his last. So this is 1986. Part of our analysis was not only reviewing all of the sexual assaults and all of the murders, but also reviewing a series of about 120 residential burglaries that occurred in Visalia, California, which is approximately three and a half hours south of Sacramento. These burglaries started prior to the sexual assaults. They started in April of 1974 and ended in December of 1975. And the offender in these burglaries became known as the Visalia Ransacker. And some investigators were convinced that the Visalia Ransacker was the same person that was committing the sexual assaults in Sacramento and who went on to commit the murders in Southern California. However, there was by no means a consensus and other investigators were convinced that they were not the same person. I think this had to do with the fact that there were very different descriptions of the offender from Visalia to Sacramento. We talked about that, how many different descriptions, how well he was at hiding his identity and 
always wearing a mask and, and no one ever really got a good look at him. But the descriptions were very different. And sometimes eyewitness descriptions are notoriously bad. And I also think it was difficult for some of the investigators to believe that the Visalia ransacker could make such a big leap from burglar to rapist to murderer. But the Visalia ransacker, it's important to understand exactly what he did because it was unusual. He'd break into homes. Usually it was during the day when the families were out. He'd ransack the homes extensively. He'd throw clothing around. Mostly it was female clothing, such as lingerie, bras, panties. He stole a variety of items, some of it for material gain. He stole some money, jewelry. He also stole things like photographs, pantyhose, lingerie. And sometimes he would stack items on doorknobs so he would be alerted if anyone came home. He left fingerprints in lotion at one of the scenes and a bottle of lotion was found at another scene and it didn't belong to him. And yet another victim reported her beauty cream was stolen. So I thought this was an indication that he might have been masturbating at the scenes using these, this lotion on September 11th, 1975. And it was approximately two o'clock in the morning. There was a 16 year old girl. She was asleep in her bed. Her name was Beth Snelling. The offender got on top of her, threatened her, took her out of her room. As she struggled, he pulled out a gun, said he was going to shoot her, got her out the back door into the carport area. And hearing all the commotion, her father, Claude Snelling, who was a professor at a local college, he ran out, yelled something to the effect, hey, what are you doing with my daughter? The offender immediately shot Claude, shot him twice and killed him. And then he turned and pointed the gun at Beth, but he didn't shoot her. He kicked her in the head several times and he ran off. And it was determined that the gun used to kill Claude was stolen during one of the residential burglaries. So, you know, as a result of all these burglaries and the murder of Claude Snelling, the Visalia Police Department, they increased their patrols. And then on December 10th, 1975, a police officer named Bill McGowan. He was on a stakeout and he spotted a prowler. Officer McGowan confronted the prowler and he had his flashlight out. He drew his gun and the suspect begged the officer not to hurt him. And he screamed over and over again, oh my God, don't hurt me. Oh my God, don't hurt me. McGowan described his voice as being very juvenile and very effeminate. The prowler then screamed, I give up, CC, I've got my hands up. But McGowan said the suspect had his right hand in the air, but his left hand was still inside his jacket pocket. The suspect pulled out a gun and shot at McGowan and it struck his flashlight. McGowan fell backwards and the suspect fled. And this was the last time that the Visalia ransacker had ever been seen. And then the sexual assaults start in the summer of the, the following year in Sacramento. So first... Do you want to talk about the linkage first, or do you want to go into his profile? What do you think? I think his profile, and then we can talk about the linkage, because our linkage was behaviorally based. So I think we could first talk about what he was not. He wasn't a sadistic offender. 
There was no gratuitous violence. There was threats of violence to gain control and to maintain control. There was violence when his control was taken away or challenged. Sadism was not part of of the fantasy driving him to commit these crimes. Many of the victims described him as being gentle. He didn't physically hurt them. And when he did, it was when he was met with noncompliance. He did punch a couple of victims who attempted to get away or didn't comply with his demands. In one case, a victim fought him and started screaming and he jabbed a nail file into her eye. So, but he didn't hurt the victims just to hurt them during the sexual assaults. And that's consistent. When you see him violent, at least in the sexual assaults, it's because of challenges to his control. Later, when he commits the murders, you see him violent to ensure control. And that was really after his control had been, had been challenged on a few occasions. Not only was he likely that he could have been apprehended because of that, but he was also put in physical fear when he lose control of the scene. And so he just eliminated that possibility by killing them. And then he knew that while he was still in contact with them, that was going to be it. And there was no chance of his control ever being taken away from him at that scene. So control was his main motivator, not sadism. I agree. I think that he combated his feelings of inadequacy through his fantasies of possessing control and power and toughness in the ability to intimidate others. Going with that impression uh, manipulation of using a voice instead of whispering, which is probably better than disguising your voice would be whispering or using some other type of voice. He chooses to use one that would be uh, interpreted as tough. He brags about his sexual conquests. He claims to have been in the military and, and also claims to be a, a drug addict that is looking for a fix. All of these things, what they have in common is it puts people in fear and makes them think they're dealing with someone who is, is dangerous and unpredictable and, and someone that they better comply with. Along with that, the gory, brutal threats of threatening to cut off the ears and fingers of women and children of this exaggerated animalistic behavior that he exhibited so often when he was in their homes so that all the victims could hear this. He was gratified by doing these things. This was important to him. I think that it ran, I think it was a central theme in all of these crimes is that this individual was able to be perceived and treated like someone who was powerful, who was in control, and who they dared not confront. And I think going back to the having the women bind the men, that was all about control. He's controlling one victim to assist him in disabling another victim. And they are sexual partners. 
So much like the offense itself, he is placing his control and his presence between this loyalty and this relationship. And that is part of his fantasy as well. That is a form of ultimate control to not only take control of both victims, but to take control of one victim and have them assist him in taking control of the second victim. And it's the female that is tying up the male. So she's helping him as opposed to maintaining loyalty to her sexual partner. All about control for him and control that supersedes or overwhelms any prior loyalty, relationship, contacts, et cetera, because he is all powerful. One of the detectives said to me that he can't be insecure because he's going in, he's attacking men. I thought that his victim selection said so much about him. I thought it reflected his interest in power and control and the fact that he was insecure rather than it pointing to the fact that he was secure because he could go in and and control another man. I think that's what made this case so unusual was his victim selection. He obtained his power not only through the four sexual acts with the female victims, but he also obtained his power by rendering the men powerless to stop him and, and forcing them to be present in the same residence when he sexually assaulted the, the female companions. And I think you and I both agreed that the male victims were central to his motivation, his gratification, and they were just not obstacles to overcome. He specifically wanted the men to be there. And it's not because he was secure in himself. It's actually the opposite. I think that is difficult for people to understand. Well, basically, if you buy what he's selling, then you would say, yes, he is a, he's a very powerful guy that comes in and takes control of other men and then proceeds to sexually assault their women. And this is a very dominant male that's doing this. And yet, when you look at the actual details of the crimes, what he does is use the element of surprise on sleeping victims, immediately threatens them with deadly force, quickly disables the males through binding, and then binds the female victims, and then can do what he would like to do. And not only that... As a further measure, he places the cups and saucers and fragile objects on the backs of the men. So if they move, he'll hear them fall. He would threaten, if I hear these items fall, I'll return and kill you. So even that, they're bound, bound twice sometimes by him. And he still places these objects on their backs. What he demonstrates is a real concern, actually more than concern, a fear that he will have to, he potentially could be confronted by a competent male. And this is unacceptable to him. In the cases where he is confronted, he doesn't use other other force, physical force. He doesn't overpower them. He doesn't opt for less than deadly force. He goes right to deadly force. I don't even mean bludgeoning. 
he will immediately go to the most efficient, quickest means of deadly force being his gun and shoot them at least until they're disabled. Then whatever he does, he does. But in the cases with Rodney Miller and his dad, he's being confronted by two competent adult males and he immediately goes to deadly force. In the Maggiore case, he immediately goes to deadly force. Although the, the sexual aspects of his crimes are important to him, in the case where he's confronted, he needs to eliminate that threat, which just tells you that contrary to being very confident, dominant, secure, capable physically, he is actually quite frightened of the potential of control being taken from him. And so although at first blush, someone might mistakenly interpret his violence against males as being an indication that he is dominant over other males, when you get into the details of his cases, as you said, the presence of the male is very important for his own attainment of a feeling of dominance and control, which he is seeking because in reality, he has no dominance and no control. In other related behaviors, his hypervigilance, going back and checking them so many times during the crimes, retying them, threatening them over and over again, putting guns to their heads. The other thing he would do is that he would say to the female, come with me to help me find the money and the purse as an excuse to separate her from the male, mitigating the chance that the male victim is going to have to take any immediate action. All through these crimes, he had this concern and he demonstrated it by all his actions with the possibility of being confronted and overpowered by another man. As you pointed out, Rodney Miller, the Maggiores, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but we saw it in Visalia with Claude Snelling, with Officer McGowan. And of course, we saw it with Robert Offerman and Greg Sanchez, two of the male victims who escaped their bindings. Very consistent when he's about to have to physically fight another man. He's not going to do it. And he does everything he can to prevent that from happening. It's obsessive. It is, even to the point where People who, are, who have no idea what's going on in, in the house, who happen to be congregated just outside the house, are of distracting concern to him. On the outside chance that they could become aware, I guess, why else would he be concerned? He's looking out the window at a group of young, of young men congregated outside a home because he's worried that they'll become aware of what he's going to do or what he's in the process of doing, and they may confront him, which Although they're outside the home and they have no knowledge of what he's doing, it's enough of a distraction where he checks repeatedly, as you said, obsessively, to make sure that they're not giving indication that they're aware of what he's doing and are attempting to somehow intervene, all of which speaks to our observations of his personality as being inadequate and his crimes as being compensatory. Rather than being confident and tough, he was intimidated and inferior and envious of other men. One of the things that I noticed was that in one of the cases, he said to the female victim, put your legs around me as if I'm your husband. He really 
gained a lot of gratification from taking what he perceived as belonging to other men. This included their possessions to control, to sexual access to their female companions. And as we see in the break-ins that were into unoccupied homes, the interest there, again, is occupying intimate private space and accessing intimate private objects, clothing, etc. Indicative, again, of someone who is an outsider to that type of intimacy and who is looking to take it, to possess it, outside of who should be possessing it and who should be occupying it. And again, on a continuum of behavior, this is the same thing. Burglary is occupying someone's most intimate space. Rape is entering someone's intimacy to the nth extreme, to the ultimate extreme. We're seeing this is that although they seem unrelated to many eyes, a burglary is not like a rape. When we look at the burglaries and we see what the focus is of a burglar, not not electronics, not uh, money, not jewelry, but intimate garments, sexualized objects, then you realize that there is some type of sexual thing going on there. And given what we know about this offender in his behavior in, in sexual assaults, we realize that this control, this possession, this taking of or violating intimacy and privacy is something that is very valuable to him. Initially, that urge may have been satisfied, at least partially, by entering a residence, and ultimately that wasn't enough. There was no doubt in my mind when I read the Visalia cases, all of the incidents provided to us, that they were connected, that it was the same offender, despite, I mean, maybe I had a little doubt, just because the the descriptions were very different. So that always had a little bit of doubt in my head. But then I'd go back and I would read the reports. What became so clear in the burglaries that was also very clear in the sexual assaults and the homicides is that he is sexually stimulated by looking and rummaging through victims' personal belongings. It was important to him that the victims know that he had gone through their personal space this is why he left all the cabinets and drawers opened and all the burglaries in Visalia and made messes of the house. I mean, he did things. He would move items and objects around and dump things on the floor. In one case, he poured orange juice on a bed and he deconstructed a padded bra. And it was really important for him that the victims know that he had gone through their space. It was also exactly what he did in the rapes. He was loud and vocal, rummaging through their homes the entire time, slamming doors and cabinets and the gulping of the food. This was extremely important to him. I believe sexually arousing to him. I think he was masturbating at the scenes. I think there was evidence that he was masturbating while committing the Visalia ransackings, the use of the lotion, fingerprints in lotion. And then Not only that, he used lotion when he sexually assaulted the women. The lotion was a big part of it. There were other things, too, that were unique. For example, in Visalia, he would do things such as steal one earring from a pair. That was also noted 
in sexual assault case in Sacramento, he would leave makeshift alarms on the doorknobs of the homes in Visalia to be alerted if anyone came home. Similar behavior in the sexual assaults when he put things on the victim's backs. So there were things like that that were also very unique that helped provide the linkage, but it was the overall sexual component to the Visalia ransackings that really made us believe that these were linked. Not only that, his reaction when he's confronted by another physically fit, competent male is immediate deadly force. We saw that in Visalia. We saw that in the Sacramento cases, and we saw that in the homicides in Southern California. He's very consistent. So even though he's gone from burglary to rape to murder, his behavior through all of these crimes, very consistent and very unique. And it was unique enough for us to link those cases in Visalia behaviorally to all the other cases. And that was really important in in that case. And it was particularly important to me because they had no physical evidence that was linking him to the murder of Claude Snelling. My fear was that was never going to get solved because there wasn't any DNA. I always thought that the sexual assaults and the homicides would get solved eventually because they had the DNA. My hope, and I'm sure all the investigators hope was hopefully he gets caught before he dies and hopefully he wasn't dead. And statistically, I thought he should still be alive. But it was great to be able to link those cases in Visalia to the other cases so that he could be held accountable for the murder of Claude Snelling. I honestly worried that that would never happen. And while I think all law enforcement knew he probably did that, I was concerned it would never be held accountable for it. So the behavioral analysis that we did and the linkage to these cases was very critical. This was someone who... I'm not going to say he was evidence conscious in a sophisticated way, but I wonder if DNA analysis had been as developed or had been developed at the time he was committing these crimes, would he not have done something to obscure that evidence? Um, Would he not have had expended effort to hide or eliminate that evidence? And I think it's quite possible he would have based on the sophistication of the other aspects of his crimes how he entered buildings, how he took control, how he obscured his face. In a way, technology marches along and continues to be developed, and science is what ultimately caught him. But I think had these crimes been committed in this day and age, I think that perhaps there would not have been the evidence on which to base that, or it would have been a lot more difficult to find. That's it for this episode of The Consult. Please join us next week as we continue our discussion of the serial burglar, rapist, and murderer, Joseph James D'Angelo. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 
at The Consult Pod. Thank you for listening. What if everyone thought you murdered your best friend? And what if you can't remember that night? And what if the truth doesn't matter? The Washington Post says Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie is an edgy mystery novel whose true crime storyline draws you in like the podcast Serial. A Good Morning America book club pick that Stephen King calls a page turner from the first sentence to the very last. Listen for the Lie is on sale now everywhere books are sold.